Okay, so uh, welcome to Mark here again as we continue along. Uh, Last week we did finish uh, chapter 1 of Mark. If you recall, we kind of finished up talking about how Jesus was healing many. We talked about some of the healings he did. Then we moved into Jesus preaching in Galilee and discussed the significance of that. Um, and, and, and at that point, too, remember, Jesus went and, and prayed. So we t- talked a little bit about Jesus' prayer, why he prayed. We looked at some of prayer then. Um, then also kind of followed up with really looked at Jesus' real task was his preaching, which is a proclamation of the gospel, which really, as Mark continues to say throughout Mark at the beginning, that that was his main purpose at this time, preaching as opposed to the healing of course, the healing was another aspect of his ministry, but then specifically it was for the proclamation of the gospel. That was kind of the main point. On that healing then, we moved into a discussion and looked at Jesus uh, cleansing the leper in, in verse 40 there. Uh, focused really on Jesus' compassion. Recall I talked about the word, the Greek word for compassion, which is splachnisomai, comes from splachna. An onomatopoeia sounds a word that sounds uh, uh, sounds like it means. We talked about what that was and the sacrifice of animals and the, the spilling of the guts, and then how that then translates to Jesus and Jesus' compassion, and then Jesus' ultimate compassion for us, which was on the cross as the sacrifice. So a lot of cool stuff in that story of Jesus cleansing the leper that we went through. Okay, and then we kind of, we, we finished chapter 1. We briefly started on then her chapter 2, which is Jesus healing a, a paralytic. I got a couple of verses in, into it, but uh, so we'll pick up um, with that today. So, having said, why don't we start with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so if you want to turn... In your Bibles, I know I read it last time, but let's kind of read this story again so we can get in the framework as we move through it today. A um, lot going on within this story. So Jesus heals a paralytic. It's, cha- it's uh, Mark uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And I'll read that again here, and then we'll go back through it line by line. Okay. Chap- uh, chapter 2, verse 1. And when he, which is Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, They removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? 
He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. All right, so a lot of stuff going on here. Let's go. I covered a couple, but let me just kind of recap. Uh, It says, And when he returned uh, to Capernaum, and recall I talked about this, Jesus, uh, Mark really admits a lot here. In, in Matthew and Luke, there's a lot of other stuff go on between this time period, between just prior Jesus cleansing a leper, which we talked about last week, and now Jesus healing a paralytic. Uh, Matthew, this doesn't start till chapter 9. Luke, it's in chapter 5. Again, I showed you a map last time. I didn't bring that today. Jesus had been traveling kind of the other side of the Sea of Galilee in between this time, has now come back. Recall I also talked about that during this time, Jesus had given his servant on the mount. Uh, Mark doesn't talk about that. But so there had been some time that's going on here. So then after that, Jesus comes back. It says he's at home. Uh, it's debate again over where this is Jesus's home or possibly Simon Peter's. Um, as I told you guys last time, Linsky in his, one of his commentaries that I'm using to prepare, he's adamant that this actually was Jesus's own home where um, Mary and other relatives lived. Okay, and then so, and they were gathered there, and uh, there was no more room, not even at the door. Of course, now this area becomes packed, right? We know because Jesus, is uh, the stuff he's done, he's got quite the crowd now. He's become quite the celebrity, I guess. A lot of people, he gets back into this area. Uh, The town gathers there. I briefly discussed about some of the archaeological evidence in fact, some archaeologists believe that they've actually found this house. Um, interesting how they were made. Uh, it, it, was, it was a home, single-story home. Usually, kind of this one was close to a mountain, so where you can see how they would have been easy to get on top of the roof. Others say other homes had kind of stairs going to the roofs. The roofs were made of this clay tile with sod on top of them. Uh, interesting though too, a lot of these homes had this kind of big porch out in front. So if you, I'm just kind of giving you a picture of what's going on here. So when it talks about the crowds, we can assume that crowds were maybe not necessarily all the way in the house, but have crowded around in this big porch area. So hard, obviously hard to get people uh, into the house here. Um, that's why they couldn't just bring this man in on the stretcher through the people, right? Um, another thing to note about verse uh, 2 here, it says, And there at the house, and Jesus was preaching the word to them. Recall, I talked about this last time, the word in Greek, logos, here it means more than just a word, but it's a sense of this, it's a message or an account. And of course, we know uh, that the word here, when we say preaching the word, it's the good news, the gospel as Mark has previously told us earlier in Mark, what this was. Remember in Mark 1.14, uh, 
uh, where it says, uh, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So that's what this is. And again, this, as Mark continually repeats, this was Jesus' chief work, right? Uh, shown on multiple occasions, preaching and teaching the word. All right. Any questions up to this point? All right, let's look at verse 3. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not gather near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So I kind of talked about the, the, the arc, how this place looked, what the roof was constructed like. Obviously, they get on the, work, on the roof, dig through the roof, and they lower... Um, this man down. And of course, this tells us these, these men were persistent, right? The four of them, they were very persistent to get there, um, enough so to where they would climb up on the roof and dig the roof to get this man down to Jesus. And it's kind of self-explanatory why they did this. Why would they do that? Why would they put in this much effort, right? Well, they went through all this effort because they knew that Jesus could actually heal their friend, right? And we'll see this in the next verse here. So they knew that this man, from everything they've heard, right, about this man, that this man, in fact, Jesus, could heal their friend. All right. Verse 5 then. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, your son, your sins are forgiven. And, And note here, that you know, no one uttered a word to Jesus. The four friends of the paralytic man, they didn't lower him down and say, hey, we're here because of this, right? So I think that's kind of important. Not one word uh, uttered. And more eloquent, I think, that the words where Jesus saw what these men actually did to get this paralytic to him. He didn't need any explanation of why they came, right? He saw this. So Jesus sees all that is involved in this, in this case, and also what it would mean for all the people um, there witnessing what was going to take place, all right? And, and the way we can look at this, then this, this pericope here, it's kind of two dynamics. First the soul, then the body. And let's talk about that. What does it mean? So with this greatest tenderness then, what does Jesus first do? He doesn't cure the, lap, or the paralytic, right? He absolves the paralytic soul. And, and, but all those who were there only saw this man's affliction, right? His bodily affliction. So, but Jesus saw something further with this man, right? Saw uh, maybe some guilt or repentance in this man's heart. So we must assume here that something else was going on with the paralytic, that he suffered from a greater ailment than his physical, right? Uh, something, he came to see Jesus possibly for the, the, the burden of his sins as well. Okay, so note what Jesus says to the paralytic right off the bat. The first word he says is son. I think that's kind of interesting there. Why would he choose that? Son, your sins are forgiven. You know, I think uh, it applies some... An, Affection, kind of a familial concern. He had true, genuinely compassion on this man as well, right? Son, your sins are forgiven. All right, I want to talk about this word then, forgiven. Forgiven in the Greek, it's a, a fientai. And the tense here is interesting. I read this in one of the commentaries on analyzing the tense of this verb, the way it's used in the Greek here. It's, 
It's in this present indicative kind of area where, where really the translation is this. Your sins are actually right now truly being forgiven. That's the sense of the way that this word is here. So when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, this isn't something that's going to happen down the road. We know, of course, on the cross is the ultimate forgiveness. But when we see that here, when Jesus speaks this word of forgiveness, it is actually, truly, right now, at that time, sins were being forgiven. So Jesus is asserting that forgiveness is actually being applied as he speaks here. It is strong testimony, then, that God himself is actually with his people in this man, Jesus. And then he brings to the people among other things, the healing and all this, the forgiveness of sins. And this then is some of this kind of this truly, remember I talked about this new teaching. We talked about it previously when Jesus was in the synagogue, this kind of new teaching that was going on and everyone amazed. Well, this is also part of this new teaching, right, that's going on. Actual forgiveness of sins now in the presence of Jesus, who is God here, who is forgiving sins. Okay? Any questions on that, on the forgiveness of sins? Chris, yeah. We may not have a... It's interesting that it's, we're not told that this man repented. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, so I think that's interesting. We'll see it more with when the Jesus looks. When we get further in this pericope, we look at Jesus, can see into the scribes' actual inner thoughts and stuff. So maybe there's some divine stuff going on there that he's seen that we're not being told about, but clearly Jesus sees somebody, something within this man that says he's repentant possibly and, and has this burden and needs the forgiveness of sin. So that, that is a great point. We don't know, but I think it's part of what he sees then in the scribes after there and sees within their hearts too. So, Pastor, any follow up on that maybe? Yeah, there you go. When Jesus saw their faith. Right. So it's. But I think it is fair to assume that all the, also Jesus could see uh, with him, him as well. Right, Pastor? In terms of that. I mean, yeah, that's one of the key parts of this text that I cue in on as a preacher is Jesus sees their faith, which is something we can't see. Right. And similarly, he sees into the opponent's hearts as right. they're questioning him. So this divine sight where Jesus can perceive into the hearts of men. Yeah, that's right. So good point, Chris. Yeah, that's right. Where it's not mentioned here directly with, with this man, but clearly Jesus does see something, right? And, and, and as opposed to say right off the bat, which we would think, right, that they bring the paralytic down, that we think Jesus' first thing is going to say, I'm going to heal the man. But it, was, it, was, it wasn't that, right? He sees something different. So did you have a question? I, I was just going to address what I think Pastor said, which is the uh, these four men. It's amazing to me that they were like-minded and they were such good friends, equally uh, committed to bringing him. So when he sees their faith, so this is five 
Yeah. Uh, right. And the friendship, though, they had to really, that wasn't an easy job to take take the person up on the roof and lower them down and so forth. So yeah. um, if, if we're going to talk more about that later, that, that, that would be interesting to hear more about that. Yeah. Joshua had one. So for Jesus to call this person son, probably he Jesus has already considered him like a child of God. I think, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Because right, yeah. Of, and the faith that he... I think so, because you said in their faith, right, in their faith, right. That's exactly right. And I guess we would say this is the pre then the Christian baptism. So, of course, we know that today we're called children of God based on our baptism, right? That's where God uh, puts his name upon us and we become his adopted children, right? That's, that's why Jesus and God can call us sons and daughters today because of the baptism. But clear, clearly here, too, because of their faith, Jesus is able to, to say son to him, call him his son. son. Good point. Good point. Okay, so we see this. Jesus then says, "Sons, your sins, son, excuse me, your sins are forgiven." Of course, that's directly to this paralytic man. All right, now we have kind of a different, uh, kind of a turn, turn of events here, right? So this first takes place. Uh, son, your freaking sins are forgiven. Now in verse six here, we see now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Okay, let's talk about that. This is that they're talking about what Jesus sees. Okay, so we talk about what Jesus could see in the paralytic. So now, what are the scribes doing? They're questioning in their hearts. Uh, first of all, we know scribes. This is kind of the first time that we're going to really. The scribes are being very involved now. We've heard them a little bit, but now that they're really here, their their interest has been peaked. Right? They've kind of heard some of their stuff. So now they're 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 really really following Jesus here now. Uh, interesting that uh, uh, Mark uses this term. Scribes were sitting there. Okay, I don't think they were outside, but you know, you think about this crowd. Uh, a kind of a note on on sitting. Why the scribes are sitting? Why everyone else is uh, crowded? Um, some commentators think that this really comports well with with Jesus's condemnation of the scribes, which we'll see down the road. And we'll learn more in Mark, who desire first the first chairs in the synagogue, right? And the first reclining couches at meals. We'll talk about this in, in, in chapter 12. So this is kind of a theme, the scribe sitting. Now scribes, they feel then here that they're entitled to this special treatment. I think that may be why this, this, this note of sitting here are. Then we've got to remember who the scribes were. They were really the masters, masters of the Hebrew law during this time. But also they were the upper, they were the highest class citizens um, of the time. So this is the upper elite, right? The scribes here. So I think that's neat to kind of note why Mark noted that they were sitting there. And again, this is really the first appearance in Mark of this Jewish leadership where they're involved. And of course, I think by saying the scribes were sitting there, Mark is probably depicting them, making this depiction a negative right off the bat. Because we know very soon, just actually in the next chapter, which we get to, is they're going to be 
saying we're going to kill Jesus, right? The scribes are. So this comes very shortly after where we are here. So scribes right off the bat being uh, you know a negative connotation with them, and maybe that's why uh, Mark uh, used the, the the pointed out that they were sitting there. So of course the scribes have heard of Jesus, I think, you know, from what's going on. He is the celebrity, I guess, so to speak. And I think they were really concerned with his scriptural interpretation, probably. Uh, recall, remember, that Jesus had taught in the synagogue and uh, throughout all of Galilee. So no, no doubt the scribes knew what Jesus was saying was going on. And they were there, obviously, kind of maybe in this undercover to really spy and investigate Jesus because Clearly, I don't think anyone can dispute this. They did not like what was going on, right? So then, that's what happens then. We see this. The scribes were sitting there, and they were questioning in their hearts. Now, of course, they were there to hear Jesus, what he's doing, but now they're questioning in their hearts what? They're questioning his teaching and preaching. And, of course, mainly questioning that Jesus can stand in front of everybody and say, Son, your sins are forgiven. Clearly, this does not uh, meet with the scribes' approval, right? And maybe they're up, I think it can be upset for a number of reasons that Jesus is off on his own doing this. He's doing, and, and now forgiving sins. And I'll talk more about that in a minute here. So, questioning in their hearts, okay? Doesn't mention anything that they're. Uh, intentionally yelling out anything, and that's important, okay? They're not saying, speaking anything, but they're sitting there questioning now what Jesus is doing within themselves, right? Okay, and then right after that, in in verse uh, 7, what do they say? They say, why does this man speak like that? Speak like that. Why does this man speak, son, your sins are forgiven? And then they say, he is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Okay, so this questionnaire, why does this man speak like this? Clearly, it's not, I think it's not a, it, it, it's not a fair question, their point. They're not, they're, it's, it's a hostile question right off the back. Why does this man speak like this? So hostility we can see there. And that's true then by the, the next statement that they say. What do they say? He is blaspheming. This comes from the Greek word blasphemeo. And the definition is to slander, hence to speak profanely of sacred things. Okay? There's the accusation. What's Jesus doing? He's speaking profanely, okay, of Scripture or what we believe because he is saying, Son, your sins are forgiven. So here then is the accusation that I think what they're getting at is that Jesus is really claiming this divine authority, right? Because true forgiveness must come from God alone, not this man here, Jesus. So I think that's obviously what's going on. And I guess at the time, maybe this argument kind of sounds reasonable. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, I think that the self-evident answer is really true here beyond this question. And we think about it in the Old Testament. There's a lot of references of this. I just picked up a couple uh, that the scribes had learned in the Old Testament, of course, that it's Yahweh that forgives sins. We see that in Psalm 25:18, where David is praying to Yahweh. 
Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins to Yahweh. Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Sound familiar? It's in our liturgy, right? So, so clearly, I mean, this, this concept of forgiveness of sins to God, you know, the scribes knew that it's all over the Old Testament. But then, what's going on here, they see this mere man, right? A mere, a mere man pretending to forgive sins. That has to be the worst form of blasphemy. Okay. But, of course, as we know, their mere mistake was considering Jesus a mere man, in spite, actually, of all the evidence they've heard from the contrary up to this point. So, right? So he is blaspheming. Okay. Um, and then, you know, as we know, too, obviously, Christ, you know, in terms of the forgiveness of sin, as the Son of God, he's equal uh, he has all the divine attributes, and of course, he can forgive sins in his own power. But then we know that he ultimately forgave the sins on the cross and his weakness, right? So, right, it's okay. So they're not seeing who this man is, and that's where they're questioning in their heart, and they're saying that he's blaspheming. And who can forgive sins but God alone? Okay, so this is what's going on here. And then. Get to verse 8. First of all, any other questions or comments on that? Chris, yeah, yeah. So it's like um, he's, he's, um, it's as if he's inviting this whole thing to go to the next level. Yeah. And that, you know, obviously he's not just another man. So that's, this Curry. is where that begins for Mark. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And, then, and I think he's, he's intent, remember, he, he's setting this up, right? He does, and we're going to get talked about, the, what does he do? He does the easy thing first, right? So then they're questioning that, and then what does he do? He heals them, but I'll talk about that. But that's right. So this is, I think, intentionally, this is intentionally going to Jesus' plan. So right, right, right. And I was just thinking that previous question I had about, uh, or not a question, but just comment that the man himself didn't, openly repent or, or ask for forgiveness of his sins. But then just right before that, Mark talks about how he, he's casting out devils. And he didn't ask the, uh, where is it here, in a, um, where it begins, verse 21 of... Uh, oh, yeah, where Jesus uh, heals the man with the unclean spirit, Yeah, right? he, he didn't ask him, you know, as a precondition, you know, do you want to have the evil spirit come out of you? He just decided to take the evil spirit out of him. And so in the same way, he didn't ask the paralytic, do, do you want to be, do you want to repent? He, he saw that he had the faith and he saw, yeah. so made, Jesus made the decision. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, so it just, Good it just point, occurs yeah. to me that it's kind of like by degrees, it would be a stronger version of taking out of somebody who was willfully didn't want to have anything to do, you know, what, what have you to do with us? And, that, that right, so he's like pushing away Jesus, but this man is welcoming Jesus at least to the extent that he wants his physical ailments, right? So that's a different degree closer to Jesus. Yeah, good and, point. Uh, yeah, so yeah. it makes sense in that context. Yeah, that is good. 
And now that you bring that up, we look back at, what were the demons? Well, the demons uh, are the unclean spirit. When they see Jesus, what do they say? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One, right? So the demons could see. But then now we get to the scribes here. They're seeing this and they're hearing this. And what do they do? They can't even, they can't see it. So, yeah, isn't there inter- some good parallels going on here? So, but that's right, yeah. Right, so Jesus... Um, Jesus does see within this man. The scribes then, you know, they can't. They they don't they don't see what's going on. But it, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the the significance of the sons your sin are, are forgiven. But first, let's look at this. He says, I talked about why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? And then Chris is kind of getting back to this point now. Let's look at verse eight here. And immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? So and Jesus perceiving in his spirit, okay? So that's what, that's what we're talking about. Jesus not only you know, read them in their expressions, their body language and what, but he's actually perceiving them with within his own spirit within himself in you know seeing within their secret minds i think is way one way to see it you know he he because of his divinity can see within their minds what they're thinking jesus knew their inner thoughts i think um and he does again is doing this by his divine nature so he knows he knows what's it when they're what's what's in their minds here just as I think now we've talked about, Chris, what you brought up about the unclean, uh, Jesus heals the man with the unclean spirit. He didn't have to, the unclean man didn't have to ask Jesus what to do, right? Jesus then, then with uh, saying, your son, son, your sins are forgiven to the paralytic. And now Jesus then is, is also doing the same thing with uh, the scribes here. Okay? And then, so then he says, without them saying prompting or anything, he goes to them, why do you question these things in your hearts, right? Um, so he's, you know, he, he, he's, he replies to their challenge, okay? They're questioning him. He goes back to them. Jesus then is confronting them with their own thoughts, really, okay? You would think that alone, they would kind of, you know, so they say this, they see Jesus, they've heard of Jesus, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now Jesus is going back to them and telling them what's in their hearts and their minds, right? But they still don't get it, obviously, and they're not going to get it throughout the end. <laughs> okay. So Jesus confronting these uh, folks with their own thoughts. Um, let's see. What else? Is there anything else on that? No, thanks. Okay, so then the Jesus, then this is kind of, there we're getting to then the climax of this here, what's going on here. Any other further questions about 2, 8 or anything on there? So we talked about this perception that Jesus is doing. All right, verse 2, 9 then. Jesus confronting them back. Kind of asks them this rhetorical question, right? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Now... Think about that just a minute, really. You know, it's just if I sit here, if someone sits there, I say, your sins are forgiven. How do you, you, know, how do you test that? 
you know, if Jesus heals somebody, you can see it, right? There's a perception there on what's going on. And that's what Jesus is getting here. It's certainly easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one, no one can see it and say that it's true, right? And that's what Jesus' point. Obviously, it's easier to declare someone forgiven than to tell a paralytic to rise up and walk into hell, right? But so Jesus, though, he says this, right? Um, but then he, he doesn't wait for an answer from them, okay? So there's silence here. So moving on to verse 10, after, after Jesus asks this rhetorical question, um, doesn't allow the scribes to respond, but then goes on further in response here and says in verse 10, uh, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, but hold on real quick before I get to the actual punchline. Let's just talk a little about this a little bit more. Of course, you know, does Jesus wanting to give these undisputable power uh, that he possesses at the Son of Man to show his office as the divine human Messiah here? Um, but, you know, he also says this authority on earth to forgive sins. And, of course, we know that the Son of Man, as God himself, does, in fact, have authority to forgive sins and actually dispenses this on earth. We've talked about other authority that Mark has used up to this point. So this is the theme here of this authority. What authority does Jesus have? But we know that now God has come uh, to, uh, the, uh, to these people and the per- person of Jesus of Nazareth as the incarnate one. So that he can do this. He, he has the authority to forgive sins. And it is present now, here, at this point in time, and this is the present rule and reign of God now here on the earth for his people in Jesus Christ. Okay? So that's, that's what we're seeing here. So he says to the paralytic, um, then here's the, the climax. So again, this is just, just right after he asks a rhetorical question. He says, um, that you may know, he's telling this, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the par- paralytic, verse 11, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So, that's right, turning to the paralytic, Jesus speaks to him. He speaks this word. He speaks, arise. Jesus didn't touch the man, but he just uttered a word. And this was an expression of his, his almighty will. Um, what happens, though? There's, there's silence, right? The scribes are silent. I think their silence is significant in that they had come kind of spying on Jesus to find something they could get him with. They, this blasphemy, they want to charge him. But then what, what happens? Jesus, with this physical healing now gives them something they can see, right? Some proof here they could see. Something on which that they really could not charge him on. Something in which they should have turned their hearts in hatred from, uh, to faith in Jesus. But uh, their stubbornness continued in spite of all that Jesus did here. Okay? So see, that's it. So you see then, which is easier. I mean, I know it's self-explanatory. Which is easier to say forgiveness of sins or rise up and walk? 
course it's easier to say forgiveness of sins. But then when he says, rise up and walk, heals the man, that then puts a credibility on his ability to forgive sins. All right. Verse 12 then, what happens then? Well, he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. Okay, there's no, no, no delay of time or anything. It's immediately he rises, picks up a big and goes out. He walks out. He has to get out. Picture the beginning of this when I set this up. This house, crowded house, the front. He rises and he goes out. He has to go out through all these people. You know, can you imagine everybody just witnessed what's happened? He walks through everybody. I mean, there's this, this pretty good evidence, right? Proof of what happened. And then these people were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This miracle and all that applied was something new to these people. It showed Jesus' power and authority greater than they had ever come into contact with. And the common people saw the truth to which their prominent leaders were blind. So, all right, I know I've gone through a lot. Any. Any follow up or any further anything you got anything I've missed or Chris any, anything you guys want to talk about? Just the the demon who um, who's the man who's possessed by the demons or the or the scribes who are possessed by their doubt. I'm sorry. Could you say that one more well, time? Well, he, he cast out he cast out the demon. Oh, the yeah. man, But he, but they're hardened. They've hardened their hearts. They. Yeah, that's a good point, right? Yeah, right, right. The man, man. Yeah, who is worse off? That's right. So man's cast out the demons. We're not told, you know. Let's see. Yeah, we don't, we don't, uh, Mark doesn't tell a lot about that man who, who the demons were possessed. But yeah, who is worse off? I mean, here these scribes see all this. They see all this. Uh, they, they see this. This healing where the man rises, but they've also had this other evidence where Jesus was reading their thoughts, right? And they still don't get it, right? Still don't get it. Yeah, I'd say the scribes are worse off, sure, for sure. I think the study Bible, let's look at this, this is on, on page 1658, just kind of to summarize. I thought this was... Uh, uh, a good note. So it's a, it's a quote from Ambrose, and if you've seen your study notes, it's on verse, it's on the study note for chapter 2, 11, and 12. Ambrose, of course, he's a 4th century early church father. Ambrose writes, He charged the man to perform an action of which health was a necessary condition, even while the patient was yet praying a remedy for his disease. This man would have had to pass through many people in the crowded house, his action provided incontrovertible confirmation that Jesus fully healed him. Jesus' miracles were live illustrations that he was the Messiah. That's pretty cool. Okay, so pretty good here, right? Pretty good. Uh, you question Jesus' authority of the ability to forgive sins. And what does he do here? Um, he goes even further and has this man rise up. So... I think the moral of the story is, is we can't question Jesus' ability to forgive sins, right? All right. Further up thoughts or discussion on that? Mm-hmm. Okay, so then we move on here where Jesus is calling Levi and Levi's Matthew. Um, 
So if there's no further questions or further follow-up on Jesus hearing a paralytic, I'll read this and we'll kind of start going through this here too. So Jesus calls uh, Levi, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. So he, which is Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, which is Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for they were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he, Jesus, was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call, but those who are sick, period, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. All right, great stuff here. Okay, let's talk about this first part real quick, and then we'll get into the second part. It's kind of two parts to it here. So verse 13 He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Okay, so chronologically, this account follows the healing of the paralytic we just talked about. And what does Mark do once again, which he continues to do? He takes us back to teaching, and that's what he says. Went out, and he was teaching them. Again, this is continued um, aspect of teaching. I know I keep saying that over and over, but it's talk, but this clearly Mark is showing the focus of Jesus's ministry. So Jesus is busy then with his main work here, which is teaching. All right. So then verse 14, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. All right, so Levi, don't know a lot by, so he's called Levi or Matthew. I'm not sure why that happened. Levi was his Aramaic name. It's also called, called Matthew. Um, in Matthew's gof, gospel, though, in the gospel of Matthew, the author of the gospel calls himself Matthew. Okay, So Math, Levi calls himself Matthew, so we'll call him Matthew. All right? And don't know a lot why his name changes from Levi to Matthew. Um, I did some research on Alphaeus, who this is. There's not a lot on him. Um, some say he's the father of an, the, another apostle, which is James. I didn't know that. So possibly father of two apostles, Matthew and James. So that's just a side note, but I guess nothing that I could find significant about who this individual was. All right. So that's who this is, Matthew. Okay, this is very interesting, though, though, this idea that Matthew was sitting at the tax booth. I want to talk a little bit about tax collectors because this is a theme within this, and it's a theme throughout some of the New Testament about tax collectors, all right? So, uh, we see, uh, Matthew is sitting at this tax booth, or it can be a, 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 a could also be called either a, a, a tax office or another term for it was publican's office. Publican is another name for a tax collector in this time. 
So this is a, a when you look at it though, the toll booth or in the Greek, it's really kind of toll booth. Most commentaries say so. Matthew's sitting at this toll booth. So what does this mean? So Jesus is passing by, goes by. Uh, this toll booth where Matthew was at. So Matthew's a tax collector, we know that. So the interesting thing about this toll booth or tax booth is, is that, that Matthew's sitting there and as people are coming in and out of Capernaum, they're required to pay some sort of tax. I mean, we don't know exactly about it, but clearly this is a place where people had to pay a tax. All right, but that's specific with Matthew. But let me just give a general overview also of tax collectors during this time. I mean, I think there's Matthew's at a, a toll booth, but it's kind of the same principle. These tax collectors did the same thing. So really, the tax collectors at this time in the Roman world really had to betray their own people and fleece them, okay, the Jews. Um, the tax collectors... At the time, were under contract with the Roman government. Um, they exacted taxes at, at different points of these toll booths, or maybe every year, kind of uh, from the country's citizens on behalf of the Roman government. Um, and then the Roman government would require these tax collectors to uh, to to give the the government a certain uh, amount of money a year. Okay. So this is strange. I'm not sure how they calculated taxes, but in any event, there was these contractual requirements that these tax collectors then, when you enter the contract, you are required to, to, to give this so much to the, to the Roman government. But the other thing about it is, is me reading kind of on this, is these tax collectors, they didn't get paid necessarily by the Roman government. How they got paid was, is they took off the top what they collected. Okay. You see this, that's how they got paid. So not only did they have to give a certain amount to the government, but then they had to, out of that, raise also enough money to, to make their own money, to get paid. So I think we can see that why this, there would be this, this real hatred for them. That is not only are they collecting taxes for the Roman government, they're taxing, collecting more taxes so they can get paid. And, uh, and a lot of these, these tax collectors became rich, and they were becoming rich off of the people. So... They were really mercenaries. I think they were evil. They were all in it for the money. And because of this, the Jews just despised these people, these agents of non-Jewish rule. So kind of when you see this whole history of this tax, the tax collectors, this is what was going on. So, all right. So this is what Matthew was, a, a tax collector. So in, in verse 14, or any, any Questions, or does anybody know any more about that? Done any reading on that? I think it's kind of fascinating on tax collectors and the. Again, we're not saying anything about our today's tax collectors. This was a different system, and I think there was a lot of abuses going on, especially when you see that they had to raise money to pay themselves. I mean, there's just inherent conflict of interest there, right? So, anything further? Any further questions on that? Okay, so that's the idea of tax collectors. So keep that in your mind then when we get to the second half of this pericope here too with Jesus eating with tax collectors. All right, so what does Jesus say to Matthew here? Even though he's a tax collector, hated by everybody, he says what he said to the first four disciples that we read about earlier. He says, follow me. And again, Matthew rose, left his office, follows Jesus. Uh, same with the other disciples we saw earlier, which was Peter, or Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, John, now Matthew. Follow me, and he does. 
Um, again, don't know too much about this, but obviously by this time, probably Matthew had known of Jesus, had some uh, knowledge, hearing, and hearing about him of, of who this Jesus was beforehand, but nothing's told of us in Scripture. But I think it's safe to assume that the celebrity status that Jesus had during this time, of course, Matthew had heard him. But it is, I think, important to see that Jesus is selected from this despised class of tax collectors. I mean, highly significant. All right, so verse 15 then. Then what happens then? We kind of move on somewhat at a shift in this reading then. And as he, Jesus, reclined at table, oh, excuse me now, as, as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So as he reclined, Reclined, I think that's it's a little hard to understand. As Jesus reclined at the table in Matthew's house, okay. And uh, in fact, Luke, if you read Luke, Luke five twenty nine, it's it's a Luke is a little bit more depth in depth on this, saying that it was actually Levi or Matthew that made this huge feast for Jesus in Matthew's house. Okay, so that's what's going on. Jesus is eating in this tax collector's house. Levi is there with him, reclining at the table in his own house. Levi is the host and has prepared this great feast for all these guests. And who are the guests? They're the bad people. So there we see here the guests were many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. All right? And I think that's what makes this feast so notable here. Jesus eating with tax collectors. Now we know the story of the tax collectors, uh, what that perception would be to other people in the area. And then Jesus eating with sinners. Uh, these sinners, they're, I guess, other men, not tax collectors, but of a general type who are possibly outside of Judaism, uh, living contrary to the Mosaic law and traditions, I think could be a good poss- possible explanation of who these people were. And again, let's think about this. Remember, recall table fellowship during this time, during this Middle Eastern context here is very important um, about eating, who you ate with, uh, especially the, uh, the traditional laws and the Mosaic laws. Uh, therefore, to Jesus to openly eat with those who ignore these basic understanding of the Jewish scripture and tradition really borders on the unthinkable. And this is especially true when the Mosaic Law at this time remained intact. And I'm not going to get too much into the Mosaic Law, but clearly this Jesus eating with these unclean people, this is violating uh, the Mosaic Law. So this is, this, is, uh, uh, this is what's going on here. Kind of despicable, I guess, if you were looking at from the outside in as a Jew. And then we see here that Jesus, his disciples were there, and, and, and also there were many who followed him. This uh, term here, this is the first time that we actually see this word disciple. It's from, a, it's, it's from the Greek word mathetes. Mathetes, a disciple. And really the definition of that, it just denotes a pupil or... Uh, pupils of a rabbi or a master. That's what this disciple word means here. It's different than the apostles. We'll get to that later down the road. It's two different terms. Apostles are those who are sent. 
disciples, because mathetes is the students of a pupil. So two different things. But remember, you, a disciple can also be an apostle. But apostle, so, so and I'll talk to that as we get down the road on who the apostles are. But at, at this point, though, as we see here, so the, when he says the disciples here, it's not necessarily just the 12 apostles or anything, but or just a certain number, but it could be a larger group, okay? So it's, yeah. Or it could just be Matthew and the other five. Really not, don't know here. So, but could be disciple, could be a larger group. So that's who are with him, those who are followed him. Okay, and now we hit this, this the same thing again with the scribes, all right? What do the scribes do in verse 16? Although, is there any questions up to this point? Any questions? No? Questions are further. All right. So Jesus eating here with Levi, tax collectors, sinners, and with his disciples. What happens now? I think we can anticipate, obviously, what happens, right? And who shows up, as always, who's, who's everywhere at this time? It's the scribes, the Pharisees. When they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. Okay, so they, they see here. Just before I go further, let's talk about this. Um, it says, scribes, the Pharisees. I, I tried to do some research into that. I'm not quite sure what that means. It, uh, when you look at the Greek, it could be scribes and Pharisees. So not a lot. So I, don't, I wouldn't give a lot of work, you know, what the scribe of the Pharisee was. I think it's just the, the scribes who we've talked about and the Pharisees. And uh, just a quick note on that, the Pharisees, who they were. They were a Jewish sect that emphasized this real strict observance of the Torah, which is the instruction, the teaching of the law, which compiled the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All right, so ex- these, were, these were very strict observances of all um, these teaching of the law, and especially in the purity regulations. And again, I'm not going to go through that. We went through some of that in Colossians class, so I think if you, you guys know some of that. Okay, so that's who these Pharisees are. All right, so we know Pharisees, Sadducees. I'm not going to talk about Sadducees, but Pharisees is its own Jewish sect. Sect. <clears throat> Scribes could also be Pharisees, but they were even like a kind of the, remember I talked about there, the above. They were the real masters of Hebrew law. So if you're a scribe, you could also be a Pharisee. But if you're a Pharisee, doesn't mean you're automatically a scribe. Okay. So anyway, so we got f- scribes, Pharisees here. Scribes, again, were the masters of the Hebrew law. They adhered to the teachings of the Pharisees, but um, they were actually the higher seen, as I said, they were the highest society. And the scribes then usually sat on the Sanhedrin, was like the, the su- Supreme Court legislative body, the the, the entire rule-making government, the Sanhedrin. So scribes, these are a big deal, right? Okay, so that's it. So scribes and Pharisees here. I think that's what's actually being said here. And what do they ask? They ask here, in, let's see, in 16. And the scribes of Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples... Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Uh, notice how he says, don't well, the scribes do this? They don't go to Jesus. They're always going to the disciples. I kind of think that they're, why aren't they just going directly? So 
This is clearly an accusation, though. Go right to the disciples and say, why is he eating his accusation? What they're saying is, it's the sense here is, can you imagine anything worse? Here we go again, right? This is, can you imagine these accusations? And the Pharisees, they're, they're shunned, or they're, they're just shocked that, that uh, Jesus is eating with these people because they, the Pharisees and the scribe, would shun these people, these tax collectors. But here, Jesus isn't doing this, and they, they're going to demand that Jesus do the same. Okay, they, That's what they're saying here. Why does he eat with these tax collectors and sinners? They're being accusatory, and then they're really saying, don't eat with these people, right? Okay, but Jesus then, he answers them really on the basis of their own premise, okay? The Pharisees thought that they were, that they were the strong, healthy, sound ones, and they looked on the tax collectors as the sinners or those who are ill, right? I think that we can see that going on. So Jesus then, you know, the brilliancy here on their own assumption, Jesus then is showing he's fully justified in this, and he he speaks kind of in the same language that they're thinking that they're the healthy, but then these the sinners and tax collectors are the you know sick, right? So, but Jesus said then uses that same line of thinking here. Uh, Jesus says then in verse seventeen. Uh, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, but those who are sick. And then period, I came not to call a righteous. So here we are, this physician. Jesus, as those who are well don't need a physician. So again, uh, on their own assumption, Jesus is using this physician, and that a physician is for the sick, not for the healthy so it would be ridiculous or wrong for a doctor to remain away from his patients, right? Think about that. The physician's very business is to deal with the sick in order to cure them. So, again, Jesus then is not saying that he's associating these with these people because, you know, birds of a feather flock together type analysis. No. What he's doing here is he's saying it's his great mission to seek and save the lost. Jesus is the divine physician, He came to heal sinners. And that's what he's doing here in this analogy. So just as physicians must have contact with the sick, so also Jesus' ministry required him to associate with sinners and social outcasts. And I think on that, um, we're going to have to, I got a couple more things to say about that, but we can hit that and then we can go on to the next section about fasting. All right, kind of covered a lot. Any questions? Does anybody see anything differently or have anything to follow up on anything I said so far? No? Yeah? Okay. What is the Talmud? The Talmud, that's just another explanation of the five books of the law. Isn't that right, the Talmud? So there's the Talmud and the Torah. So I think it's like an instruction manual, if you'll look it up. I think that's what the Talmud is. Does that say that? In the Google? Yeah. Instruction manual. It's a big version with annotations <laughs> of the law, of the purity regulations in the law. Yeah. Good question. Anything further? Okay, thank you all. Everybody have a good rest of your week. The Lord be with you. So with you.